This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. As you do, please open your Bibles and turn in them to Mark chapter 6 this morning. We are continuing our study in the book of Mark, and we are going to be starting in Mark chapter 6, verse 7 today. I'll give you a moment to turn there. As you are turning there, I want to read to you a small portion from a Moody Bible Press biographical sketch of a great missionary, a missionary by the name of William Borden. Just out of curiosity, how many people in the room have ever heard the story of the great missionary William Borden? We have one. Praise God for that. Let me read to you from the Moody Bible Press report. It says, In 1904, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. As heir to the Borden family fortune, he was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave this 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world. As the young man traveled through Asia and the Middle East and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, William Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. One friend expressed disbelief that Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. In response, William Borden wrote these two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look just like one more freshman, just an everyday guy. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't the fact that he had a lot of money. One of them wrote, he came to college far, far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ, and he had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and to find strength that was solid as a rock just because of this settled purpose and consecration to the Lord. During his college years... William Borden made an entry into his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. That entry simply said, Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. When he started college at Yale, he began a prayer meeting and a Bible study, and by the end of his first semester, there were more than 100 regular attenders at this prayer meeting. And by the end of his senior year, there were over 1,300 regular attenders. We'll skip down a little bit farther into the story of William Borden. It says, Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim people in Kansu, China. Once he fixed his eyes on that goal, he never wavered. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize that he must be about his father's business. So upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down multiple high-paying job offers, and he wrote in his Bible two more words, No retreats. We're going to come later on back to William's story. Uh, but for now, 
I'd like for you to look at your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, and we're going to learn about missions today. We're going to be seeing in Mark chapter 6 all about what God intends for us as disciples to be doing. We have come now in Mark to another inclusio. This is another Markan sandwich, as it were, where Mark will begin a story, he will tell you the beginning of a story, and then he will interrupt it with a completely different story before coming back to finish the first. So what we're going to do today is we're going to see how these stories, the outer sandwich, the bread, and the inner sandwich, the meat, help us to understand one another, how they interpret one another. Today's outline will look a little different than we are used to, as we will have two main points, but they are not separated. Rather, they are themes that run throughout every word of what we're about to see. Our two points for today are disciples go and disciples suffer. So let's examine this text this morning, one scene at a time. Scene one, Jesus sends out the twelve. Please follow along, starting in Mark 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, many of us are very familiar with the Great Commission. In fact, that's probably one of the verses that you have memorized. From Matthew chapter 18, or 28, we see in verses 19 and 20, it says, Go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we all know this verse. We've all heard this verse many times. And we have, I've even preached through this verse uh, just before we were sent out from North Shore. But it's very important for us to understand that this was not an entirely new command when Jesus gave it in Matthew 28. He had already been sending the disciples out to go make disciples. He had already been sending them out to teach repentance. He had already asked he had already we've already seen the disciples in the gospels baptizing others we have already seen them doing what jesus tells them to do in matthew chapter 28 the only difference is the scope in matthew 28 he says go to all nations here we are seeing it limited to the people in israel so jesus is sending the disciples out here as missionaries disciples go there are a few things that we should consider that appear very odd at first glance when we read this uh First of all, why does Jesus limit their luggage space? Uh, You know, it's funny. um, He charged them to take nothing for their journey. We see this in verses 8 and 9, except a staff. He says, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now, why on earth would he say no bag, no uh, bread, and no money in their belts? Because that's what you would normally take when you travel. That's what's so odd about this. There's a specific negative argument here. Do not take these things because obviously if you're going to go very far, those are the things you want. I've gone on many short-term mission trips uh, in my life. I've led them. I've gone on them um, when I wasn't a leader as a teenager often. 
And whenever I travel, I tend to pack very light. I tend to carry just a backpack, and I put as much as I can uh, in there that I need, and then everything else, it just stays home. And when I travel, I intentionally remove any excess baggage that I can. I do not want to be weighed down when I'm walking through the airport. I don't want to carry much. Ashley knows this uh, very well. And whenever I travel, people will mention how little I pack. In fact, this last week, I was earlier this week, actually, I was in Georgia for three days for a North American Mission Board training event. And while I was there, I was rooming with a man who is planting a church in Woodside, Queens. And the man that I was rooming with had two backpacks that he brought with him and two large suitcases for three days. And I didn't mention anything about this, but I found it to be odd. But this is not odd. When we travel, people always carry tons and tons of stuff. There is no way that we need as much stuff as we travel with. But even though I'm a light packer and I don't carry much with me at all, I would never consider traveling without money. There's no way I would get on a plane without a dollar or two or a debit card. I'm going to have some way to feed myself and to find lodging when I arrive where I'm going. Jesus is telling these disciples, you need to go out in faith. You need to go out trusting that God is going to direct you. He is going to provide for you. He is going to give you all that you need. And the restrictions that Jesus gives the disciples here, the ones that he's telling them, don't do this and just take this, these restrictions are not permanent. In fact, when we see Jesus send out the 72, he does not give them these restrictions. Later on, when the disciples go out, or the missionaries go out, or Paul goes out, or when we go out as missionaries, we don't have these restrictions. So feel free to pack a large bag next time you go on a mission trip. We don't have these restrictions. But what Jesus is doing here is very important for us to see. And if we're not careful, we can just skip over it. Jesus is using a picture of a very important theological truth. It's something that you can blink and miss it if you don't know your Bibles well. But there is a connection that every Jewish person in the nation of Israel would have understood when these people arrived in their towns, when they looked at what they were carrying and, more importantly, what they were not. It's interesting because Jesus' restrictions are identical to the restrictions that God gave to the people of Israel as they were to leave Egypt. So what Jesus is doing here is he is sending out missionaries to deliver the people from bondage. Just as God had delivered the people out of Egypt and told them, do not take anything but these four things with you, now he is telling the disciples, go into the world, and you are going to be leaving bondage. You are going to be calling people out to leave bondage and leading the people, the new Israel, out of Egypt. But this time, it is not a geographical Egypt. It is not a place with borders or a pharaoh. It is a spiritual Egypt, a spiritual Egypt that has conquered them and taken them over. A spiritual Egypt that has all of them in bondage. And we are currently living in that Egypt even today. There are millions of people in New York City and the surrounding area, here in Nassau County and Suffolk County, that do not know Christ. And therefore they are continuing to live in a spiritual Egypt. And Christ has called us as disciples to go and to call them out of bondage by teaching them what Jesus tells them to teach. The message of repentance, the message of the kingdom of God. Notice also the disciples went out teaching. And what were they teaching? They were teaching everything that Jesus had already been proclaiming. It's the good news. It's the gospel. They are not making up their own things here. He doesn't say, go just talk to people and say whatever you want to. There are directives here. They are to teach what he has already been teaching. 
Now, the second question that arises in my mind when I consider this first part of the story is this. Why not stay at a hotel? I mean, come on, guys. What? Why do you need to go stay at somebody's house while you're in a town? What are you, Jesus, why are you telling them to go stay at a house, but not multiple houses, just one? Why not hop around? There's three reasons for this, and, and they're all dealing with the culture of the day. First of all, hotels were very dangerous places. They were very disgusting places, and debauchery was common in these places. It was a place with a lot of alcohol, a lot of violence, and a, a lot of sexual activity that was quite immoral in nature. These places were closer to brothels than they were to the Holiday Inn. So when they go on a trip, anybody who was of high reputation would avoid an inn. People would try to find a family member or a friend or a connection, and they would route their path of travel so that they would never have to stay in an inn. They might live from the hospitality of others. Secondly, hospitality is expected. In their culture, if somebody were to come to town and to go to the village center and say, I have no place to stay, but they seemed like a safe person, hospitality was expected. And some of the harshest punishments in the ancient world were for those people who were given hospitality and they robbed the person that they stayed with or they injured the person they stayed with. Those were some of the harshest penalties because hospitality was vital to the society that they lived in. So when these people went to a town center, you know, if you go out here to Massapequa and you stand in the parking lot and say, hey, I don't have anywhere to stay. Does anybody want to let me stay at their house tonight? You're going to get a lot of people freaked out and the cops will show up and you'll probably get put, you know, put in a cop car and get asked a lot of questions. But if you were to do that in the ancient world, that would be absolutely normal. And people would find ways to serve you and to help you. And oftentimes, the people who stayed with you would even uh, make plans for you to come stay with them in the future. But a third reason is that false teachers were common in the ancient world. We find from the book of Acts that there were many false messiahs even that had come out in the hundred years prior to Christ who had declared themselves to be the redeemer of Israel. These false teachers, as we see, will come about later on, are like con artists. They will come into a town, they will prey on the people's hospitality, they will go from house to house to house, absorbing money and food and gifts and whatever else they can receive from the people, and when they have completely dried up all of the resources, they skip town and they go to the next. And Jesus is trying to teach the disciples right here from the beginning of their missionary ministry that you are to be different. You are not a con artist. You are to go to one house. You are to stay there until you leave. And then when it's time to go, leave and go to the next town, not to another home. So Jesus sent them out to teach in his name throughout the countryside. There's more that we can consider with the details here. But I'd like to move on to the second story that we see here in Mark chapter 6. Look with me to verse 14. This is the second scene in our story this morning, which is a scene about John the Baptist. Verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him, speaking about Jesus. Now, the other day I was scrolling through Facebook. And I saw something very interesting. It was a website that shows graphs and charts for exactly how much time an actor is on screen during a movie. So, for example, um, Captain America is on screen for about 38% of the Captain America Civil War movie. And it's very interesting to see how much the main character actually fits into, 
each movie as you look through the different films, how much time is the camera actually pointed at them? And then it also shows how much dialogue is actually from them percentage-wise in the film. It's a very interesting sight. But as we look at the book of Mark, Jesus has almost every bit of the screen time. The camera is almost always on him. Even if there is a conversation occurring, Jesus is in the frame. And he's having a discussion with another person or more people. But Jesus is the central figure of the whole Bible. And here in the book of Mark, rightfully so, Jesus is in the frame 98% of the time. But there are two times where briefly Mark will turn the camera to tell the story of one person where Christ is not in the story. Not that he's not involved theologically, but in person is not there. Two, two times in the book of Mark, we see that camera turn. And both of those times, the central figure of the story is John the Baptist. We see it first in Mark chapter 1, when John the Baptist comes onto the scene. And he is declaring that the Messiah is going to come. And then very quickly it turns to Christ who does arrive. But secondly, we see it here, where very briefly, Mark is going to examine the life of this man who Jesus says is the greatest born among women. This man who is the last prophet before the Messiah. This man who we look at and we think very little of compared to what we could see him as, as the great missionary John the Baptist. John the Baptist. We read, starting now, in verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 15. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. I'm sorry, pause for a moment before we, before we get back into this. Let me explain what's happening here. When Jesus sends out the twelve, John is already dead. John the Baptist has already been executed. So now what Mark is going to do is he's going to backtrack and step into what happened to John. Because if you're reading the book of Mark, you would probably be wondering, what happened to that great prophet? So now we start at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man and a holy man. And he, speaking of Herod, kept him, speaking of John, safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Disciples suffer. The story that I just read 
is as convoluted and as full of sin as any soap opera or reality show that you would ever find on television. It has the same ingredients that makes those so attractive to people today. Let's get to know this character Herod a little bit better. This man is not the same Herod that had all the babies killed back in Bethlehem. That was Herod the Great. Remember that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Egypt and they did not return to the land of Israel until Herod the Great had died, which happened, we know from history, in the year 4 BC. But when he did die, his kingdom was divided into four pieces and they were given to his four sons. So Herod, the one in our story today, is called Herod Antipas. It's interesting because Antipas means for all or for everyone. So his name, Herod Antipas, means Herod, the one who is for everyone. It's a nice, um, you know, election material that he could use there. But he's also known as Herod the Tetrarch. And the reason for that is very simple. is because they broke the kingdom into four pieces. Arche is the word for ruler in Greek. So monoarche, monarch, means one ruler. Tetrarche means four rulers. So he is one of the four rulers, Herod the Tetrarch. So occasionally you'll see him referred to in the Bible as Herod the Tetrarch. Now this man was evil. That's putting it lightly. While staying in his brother Philip's house, now if we know, we know from history kind of what happened here, he is staying with his brother in his brother's home and he falls in love with his brother's wife. He divorces his own wife and then marries his brother's wife even though his wife his brother's wife is still married to his brother. So she is now legally married to two men who are both brothers. And to make matters worse, which is not mentioned here in the scripture, but we know from history, this girl that they are both now married to is both of their niece from one of their other brothers, which makes it so much more awkward and disturbing. Just one more layer of debauchery onto this twisted pile of family sin. So Herod did, he divorced his wife, he married his brother's wife, and John the Baptist, the proclaimer of righteousness, speaks to him and tells him, this is not right. You, Herod, are supposed to be a leader in righteousness. You are supposed to be showing the people of this nation how to live, and instead, you are showing them the exact opposite. You are showing them how to bring God's judgment onto our nation. You are showing them a life of debauchery and sin. So, Herod is not offended as much as Herod's new wife. She feels slighted. She feels enraged. She is furious. And she wants this man who is proclaiming righteousness to die. Now, we're not sure, but it seems as though John has not kept this distaste for the sin private. Here in Mark, it says that he has the discussion with Herod. But it appears as though he has been saying out to the world, if anyone comes to him with a question, what do you think about this? He's going to tell you. And John, who is a preacher and a proclaimer, is very possibly even saying in a very public manner, this is sin, which has made Herodias furious. So Herod puts him in jail. Now, putting John in jail was actually protecting him from what was probably otherwise going to happen. And we see this very interesting thing here. I am amazed. As I study this, I have never thought this through before. I have never seen this before. But Herod is interested in hearing the good news about the kingdom of God. He loves listening to John. He puts him in jail. What kind of a king goes down and talks to the person in jail? Herod does. He goes and listens to him, and it says that he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Rarely do we hear anyone in the New Testament hearing him gladly or hearing Christ or the apostles or Paul gladly. We rarely see people receiving this news gladly. But 
it's interesting to me, this man who dies in his sin, this man who never repents, this man who is a great sinner, is still interested in hearing the truth. Now, just as a slight application here to us, there are going to be people that do not know the Lord, who are not going to change, who, who are, are entrenched in their sin, yet they give you opportunity, they give you their ear, they give you a chance to share the gospel. John takes that chance. He continues to proclaim the good news. Anytime someone is willing to listen to you, even if you don't know that they're ever going to change, God could do anything. Take those opportunities. Share the saving news about Jesus Christ and the saving power of God might change their hearts. But this man, Herod, he serves as a foreshadow of what's to come, even here in the book of Mark. He serves as a picture of what is about to happen with another man who is another ruler in, in Israel named Pilate. Now, Pilate, likewise, was a man whose role was to give justice to the world. One who was to pardon the innocent and to punish the guilty. That is Herod's job. That is Pilate's job. But both of them, because of peer pressure... Both of them take an innocent man, one that they know is not a sinner, and have him executed. This death of John the Baptist is a picture, a foreshadowing of what will happen to Christ himself. So let's continue the story. Herod throws himself a massive birthday party. He is obviously very into himself. And he has this massive party for himself with all of the noblemen, of all of Israel, and, or of Galilee rather. And his stepdaughter came in and he and she danced for the men. Now, without being vulgar, let me just say, this is not tap dancing. This is not ballet. Uh, Herod's stepdaughter here is doing something that is quite sinful in and of herself. She dances for them in a very inappropriate way. And as it says here, Herod was pleased. And he was pleased to the point that he was willing to give her whatever she wanted. Now, when you consider the nasty nest of family sins going on here, this just gets one more step down into the bog of disgusting debauchery. But let's continue thinking about here what goes on. He says, I'm going to give you whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. I will give you literally anything that you ask for me. But like most teenagers, she doesn't know what she wants. So she goes to her mother and says, Mom, I need a favor. Herod's going to give me anything. Anything I want. What should I ask for? Now, if I was this, if this girl, who presumably here is a teenager... And she said this to me. I would, I would probably think that's a little gross. That's not quite what I'm interested in. But she must have had a close relationship with her mother. Her mother says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is an unthinkable request. Remember, they're at a party. They're at a celebration. They're not at an execution. They're at a place where everybody is supposed to be celebrating and rejoicing and excited about King Herod. They're not at a place of death. And this young girl comes in and she asks asks boldly in front of everyone for the head of John the Baptist, and she goes one step further than her mother. She says, I want it served up to me like a dessert on a platter. Bring it in just like you would any other kind of food. So they carry it in on a platter, and then she gives it to her mother. Then John's disciples buried his body. So now we come to the close of scene number two. Let's move on to scene three. Look with me to verse 30. This is the bottom slice of bread in our story today. It's a very short one. Verse 30, the, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Just a few quick thoughts about this verse before we move to application. First, 
This is the first time in the book of Mark or any of the other Gospels that the, the disciples are now called apostles. And it's a very subtle but interesting shift that begins to occur. This is the first time this word is now going to be used of these men. This word apostle, which means messengers or envoys. You are the official uh, messenger senders for the, the master, for the king. These apostles are now going to begin taking on this title. Now, if somebody comes to you today and says to you, I am an apostle, you should be very wary of that person. Because that office of apostle was something that was limited to the New Testament era. There are no more apostles. But here we see for the first time, Jesus calling them the apostles. Now notice that the focus, secondly, is not on what they did, but it is on what they taught. They came back and they were to they were telling Jesus and reporting to Jesus, this is what we have done. We have taught the people for you. They have taught them. Now think about that. They had cast out, according to the earlier verses, many demons. And they had healed sick. And they had done all these great things in the nation of Israel. If that was me, I would want to tell people about that. Look what I did. I was able to cast those demons out. But they came back and they were interested in saying, Jesus, these are the people we were able to teach. Now, many people in the modern church, and most particularly in the Pentecostal churches, have put the focus on the wrong things. They put it on signs and wonders and miracles and, 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 and the outpouring of gifts and what they would call the movement of the Holy Spirit and instead have taken their focus off of Christ and off of the teaching. They were excited to say, we have been teaching about you. Remember, they're not teaching whatever they want. They're teaching the good news of the kingdom of God. We meet, need to be like these. We need to focus our, uh, our efforts on the teaching and not focus so much on the miracles. Now, just as a side note, uh, I do not believe the miracles exist in the same form that they did back then and by, by any means. The miracles, such as the casting out of demons and the raising people from the dead, those things are no longer active. Rather, the miracle that we have in the church today is the miracle of God taking dead people spiritually and bringing them to life. The signs and wonders that the disciples were able to perform were performed, we see from this text, for one purpose. The reason they were able to perform them is to validate the message, to validate what they were teaching, to verify that this word they are speaking is indeed truth. So we come now to a close of scene three. And what I would like to do for the remaining part of our time this morning is to simply make two applications. First, disciples go. Now the New Testament does not know a, a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus who doesn't go. Some go to their neighbors, others go to the next town, others to distant lands, but disciples always go. We see them as a missional people. I want to say, take a moment to say how thankful I am that those of you who have left North Shore to come plant a church here in Massapequa, that you have honored that call to go. That you see the need to put a church here in Massapequa so you have left that place of safety and you have gone out. But please know that does not mean that your mission is over. Your mission is just starting. We are to continually have this call to go. One of my favorite missionaries in the entire history of the world is one named Ananias. This man gets very little recognition. Very few people know about him compared to the many other great missionaries. 
But this man, Ananias, was called to go speak to a terrorist, a man who was killing Christians, a man who had left from Jerusalem to go to Damascus to tell this man who was potentially going to put him in prison or kill him and tell that man about Jesus Christ. And he doesn't go to the next country, but he does go down the street called Straight and he talks to this man named Saul of Tarsus and he shares the gospel with him and God saves that man and then that man who becomes known to us now as Paul becomes what we call the greatest missionary who ever lived. That came through the obedience of one man in Damascus, listening to the word of the Lord, going out and sharing his faith with a man who he was terrified to share the gospel with. We are to go. Disciples, go. The New Testament teaches us over and over and over. We are to be a people who go to the world and share that good news. That is the very DNA of a disciple. Application number two this morning. We are to suffer well. Disciples suffer. We see that all throughout the New Testament. That there is a promise that we will suffer. There are many promises in the Bible. We like to quote these promises to ourselves. In fact, we should. It's good that we do. Romans 8.28 For I know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Amen and amen. Yes, they do. And when we are struggling or suffering or having hard times, we should quote that. But we're a little leery to to quote to ourselves some of the other promises in the scripture. For example, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise of the New Testament. Do we hold fast to that promise as well? We should. We should because when that comes, we can say, Amen and Amen, this is happening just like the Bible said it would happen. Do we listen to the words of Jesus to the disciples, these same disciples that he has sent out already? Do we listen to his words to them in John 15, 18 through 21, when he says to them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do on, to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The reason that they treat you poorly, the reason they reject you, the reason they don't listen to your message, the reason they are going to put you in jail, the reason that they are going to eventually kill these men, all 11 of them, are going to suffer. Ten of them are going to die uh, for their faith. All of these men are going to be treated terribly. He is warning them now. He is telling them. He tells them that because it's because of what he's always been saying. Discipleship is a call to come and die. It's not a call to be great. It's a call to become nothing. It's a call to come before Christ and say, you have saved me. My life is yours now. It doesn't belong to me anymore. I am going to do whatever you want me to do because it is you who is owning me. You have bought me at a great price. Jesus says to the disciples, pick up your cross and follow me. That is what a true disciple does. They carry their own means of death with them. They carry on them when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, we are carrying that with us. We are declaring that we are no longer living for ourselves. Our passions are not our own. They are His. Many churches are afraid to tell you what I'm about to say right now. Many pastors do not mention this. 
But God does not save you so that your life can be full of uninterrupted prosperity. That's not why God saves anyone. He does not save you so that you can live your days devoid of any physical malady or illness. He does not save you so that you can experience all of the temporal blessings that the world lusts after. That's not why he saved you. He saved you to worship him. He saved you to be in a right relationship with him forever. He saves you to be his. Allow me to read you the rest of the story now of William Borden. Upon graduation from Yale... William Borden turned down some very high-paying job offers. In, in his Bible, at this point, he wrote two more words. No retreats. William Borden went on to graduate and uh, graduate his work, uh, graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey, and when he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed out for China. But because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt so that he might study Arabic. And while he was there... He contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, the 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Borden's death was cabled back to the United States, the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. This man was wealthy. His family was highly influential. People knew about William Borden. And it's, one newspaper said this, A wave of sorrow has gone around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself, in a way that was so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Was Borden's life a waste? Now, if you ask the world, they would say, this man had potential. This man had so much to give to us. This man had a great life ahead of him. What was he thinking? Was his life wasted? Not in God's perspective. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Two final words, probably written just days before his death. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he wrote these final two words, no regrets. Now the reason I tell you that story is because that's the heart of a missionary. That's the heart of a true disciple of Christ. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. And I can't see those words written here in Mark, but I can almost hear them coming from the lips of John the Baptist. That is what his heart is, is shouting. They are going to take him to be executed. All John has to do is say, no, Herodias is fine. This whole marriage thing, that's okay. Sure, whatever, I'll get over it. Culture's changing. I'll just, I'll just evolve with it. Don't worry about me anymore. I, I, I'm just going to just ignore what's going on here. You guys live your life however you feel comfortable because your happiness is what's most important. He could have said any of those things and gotten off the hook. He could have gotten out of prison. He could have probably gotten out of execution. They could have paraded him in and he could have apologized and they might have even avoided the execution. However, he went to his death declaring his king, the good news about the Messiah who was coming. The Messiah who at that time was even there. And for us who are in this room, the Messiah who is here for us. I can imagine that's the same heart that the disciples carried in them as they went to their deaths. As Peter was crucified upside down. As Thomas was flayed alive. I can imagine this is the heart of those who were burned at the stake in England and across northern Europe. And I can see that in the heart of our missionaries who are currently going out to the world right now. And brothers and sisters, I pray that this is the heart that you and I have in us. That we might live for him. Why suffer? Why go? We do this because of what we read in Galatians 2.20. 
because I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I just want to consider those words for a few moments. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you don't know what it means to be a Christian. I want to take a few moments now to speak directly to you. Because if you're here and you don't know Christ, you can't go out and share the good news about him because you don't know it. And even though you will suffer in this world because we live in a sin-cursed world, you will feel the distress of sin and the distress of all the broken relationships and all of the hardships and all of the, the poverty and all of the suffering that occurs from just being a human. You don't know what it means to suffer for Christ. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, let me tell you what this is telling us. It is telling us that giving up everything in your life, giving up every passion, every hope, every desire, every goal, every ambition, every ounce of effort for the rest of your life is totally worth it. To know Jesus. To give up everything to know the Savior. To give up everything. Why? Because there is something very precious about this king. This king is a king who is good. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is holy. And he is worthy of eternal love. This king, this God, this Savior from all eternity, not only is perfect, but he came down to live amongst unperfect people. People like you and me, who break God's law over and over, day in and day out. And he came to die on the cross for sinners who don't deserve to be saved. He came to take away our sin and to give us his righteousness. That is this king. And it is worth it for me to give up everything in my life and for you to give up everything in your life and serve him for the rest of your life because there is such great reward in knowing Christ. There are great benefits and great rewards that go with that. You get to be in heaven forever. You get to avoid the punishment of hell. But you get to be with Christ. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know what it says in this verse when it says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you want to know more about that, please talk to me after the service is over. I would love nothing more than to share the good news of Christ with you. Before we close today in prayer, I just want to say to those in this room who know Christ, be dedicated to the task. Don't grow weary in going. And don't suffer thinking that you're, you're the victim. If you suffer, it's for the name of Christ. If they hate you, it's because they hate Christ. But suffer in grace, suffer well, and live for the name of our Savior Jesus for the rest of your days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed at your goodness and your kindness. Lord, even as I prepared this, I was amazed that you call us to come and die. That you come, call us to come and give up everything. And in saying that, Lord, many would say, I don't want that. But Lord, I thank you that there is such goodness in Christ that we call out, we want him more than anything else. Let the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, we pray. Amen. This time I'd like to ask the worship team to come back forward as we close with a benediction. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.